fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren and Mr. Mr. Michael. The Ripper Holly is here. <laughs> that is correct. Depending on which connotation you use there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you ripper to shreds. So what's going on with you with that new book? What's happening? Uh, it is it is finished with the editing and the proofing, and it's now in the publisher's hands. So any day now, it will be out, and it's going to be a nice surprise for the uh, Ripper community. Well, anything you do is a nice <laughs> surprise. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's so, right. It's amazing you can get two words together on a page, but <laughs> well, that's what the editor does. I kind of like blah blah blah, and then they fix it. Yeah, it must be. You know, eight, eight, <laughs> six. This is crazy. Well, that'll be good. So, a whole new book, and we're going to find out who the Ripper really was. <laughs> is, yeah. Yep. The Ripper world, according to Holly. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not holding my breath. How's that? <laughs> So that's, it's a really uh, an unspeakable horror, but uh, that right there rings a bell today. <laughs> yeah, why would that be? No. Um, yeah, we, are, we, have an, we have an author here, believe it or not, and not just Michael Hawley. But, and uh, the new book is called Unspeakable Horror 3, and it's a Dark Rainbow Rising. Joining us to, to talk about this is Vince A. Lagano. <laughs> Thanks for being here. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for having me. Nice speaking with you, Vince. Nice to see you both. So listen, the first thing I noticed about you uh, is um, it looks like you've done a, a ton of editing. Like you're, you're, Do you consider yourself an editor primarily? I consider myself an anthologist probably primarily, um, but I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I'm a pulp, uh, pop culture anthologist, uh, enthusiast, and I'm a, a huge Jamie Lee Curtis aficionado, so... Any topic is good for me on those things. <laughs> oh, Jamie Lee Curtis. There we go. Um, but, uh, it, you know, I just, I just wondered how you got involved in this, this whole um, anthology idea. And this is book three, so this is the third book, obviously. How did you get on board with this? Um, after my uh, debut novel came out in 2006, which was called The Literary Six, it was a horror novel, kind of an homage to the slasher films of the 80s. I began uh, speaking with a gentleman named Chad Helder, and Chad Helder had a website at the time called Unspeakable Horror, and through our conversations, I couldn't even tell you this this far gone who started the conversation, but we thought that the idea of Unspeakable Horror would be a really good catalyst for a series of anthologies revolving around queer horror, and um, we decided to launch it. Uh, the first one was subtitled From the Shadows of the Closet, so the stories revolved around repression, you know, the dangers of staying in too long, the dangers of coming out too soon. Um, and lo and behold, 
to our surprise, the anthology really took off. Um, it wound up winning the Bram Stoker Award in the uh, Superior Achievement in Anthology category, um, which is, um, sadly, I will say, um, still the first and only LGBTQIA anthology to ever win in the category. So that kind of launched the series. I did a second one solo called Abominations of Desire in 2017. And then in 2023, with uh, the political climate, what it is, especially for the LGBTQIA community, I thought of the, uh, it was time to do Dark Rainbow Rising. So now if I can ask, um, what do you, so what do you, what do you consider the difference? Like, uh, so when you're saying this is LGBTQA and, you're you're talking about all of the authors, the theme, everything is to do with that basic theme, right? Like that's kind of the difference between this horror and let's say another horror anthology that's out. Correct. This one will really focus on mostly um, queer contributors, although you know there's we have straight allies in the book as well. I think it's important to uh, be an inclusive table and bring everybody to the table. I think it improves perspectives. But yeah, the the stories, the themes, everything with this is really an LGBTQ uh, plus anthology. Why do you think it took off the first one? What what was it that that made the magic for for volume one? I think because it was, it was still back in two thousand and eight. Um, I think it was LGBTQ was still a very marginalized community, and I think the idea of creating a horror anthology around those themes was very appealing. Because, you know, horror has always kind of looked at the other and otherness and, and the person on the outside looking in. Um, so I think it was kind of ripe for, uh, ripe for that audience. How do you select the people that are going to be part of this anthology? Or do you have anything to do with that? I do. Um, I usually try to, you know, in an anthology, sadly, in, in the marketplace, anthologies of short stories don't sell as well as novels. Um, that's just kind of a known fact. So they're, they're a harder sell especially when you go to the major publishers. Um, I've done these all through small press. Uh, my last anthology, which was not LGBTQIA, was called Other Terrors, and that we did through HarperCollins. Um, but in any anthology, you need some names to sell the book. So I usually will have mm, 8 to 12 invited authors, names of, of authors that I think will really capture what I'm trying to do, or just authors who I think this is such a stretch for them. I'd love to see what they're going to be able to do with it. Then um, I always try to do an open call. I know a lot of anthologists do not like the slash file. Um, sometimes it's grueling, but I think it's important to discover and then elevate newer voices. That's how we, you know, expand our our horizon, so to speak, in literature. So, how gory does do, do the stories get, or do they? Like, is this is this primarily slash and gore and and real violence and that sort of fun? No, no. Some of them are more subtle. Um, they run the gamut. There are some that are that are quite um, shocking in their violence, uh, certainly, at parts of the stories. But there's some very quiet horror stories. Um, there's some more uh, politically themed horror stories in here. So I think it really runs the gamut. So, you know, that's the nice thing about anthologies. If you're reading a story and it's not grabbing you, you go to the next story. It's not like a novel where if you stop, you know, you stop the novel. Um, that's what's so great. Or if you just pick up the anthology and you may have a favorite author or two that are in there already, sometimes you just go to those authors first and read those stories. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Now, do you do you think that, um, or do you look for um, stories that also have a theme, um, maybe a subtext, some sort of meaning behind them, or underneath the the uh, slash, let's say, or the horror itself? I think that's what's been interesting for me doing the unspeakable horror is that each volume has its own theme. So it's really what I'm looking for is how creative the contributors can be with expanding that theme or interpreting that theme. Um, some of them are a little easier. You know, when we're talking about from the shadows of the closet, repression was something that I think people can relate to on one level or another. The second one, which was Abominations of Desire, was about basically desire run, run wild. So that was a fairly easy one. This third one with Dark Rainbow Rising was a little bit more thematically dense, so I think it took a lot of creativity on the parts of the contributors to delve and, and interpret this theme. What's nice is I think this this volume has the most richly imagined stories that are all over the map in terms of the theme because people interpreted it very differently. Oh, it's interesting. I, I, I would imagine you get all sorts of interpretations from readers, and, and sometimes I, I bet they pick up things or they'll say things about a story that you would never even, it wouldn't even come to your mind. Oh, absolutely. I love the feedback from reviews and from reviewers and, and just book buyers because I'm always fascinated to know which stories resonated with people and, of course, the why. Because, you know, even as an anthologist, there's some that I really love personally um, that I'm, I'm curious to see what other people's take is going to be. And sometimes they see something I didn't even see in the story. So that's kind of fun. So, Vince, uh, do you have repeat authors that have been going through uh, each anthology, or is it all new authors? Um, I do. I have used some folks uh, several times in different anthologies. Um, in Speakable Horror 3, there's nobody that was in Part part 1 or 2, whereas Parts 1 and 2 had some repeats. Um, but I'm up to, what, five or six anthologies now. Um, and I've had Stephen Graham Jones in quite a few of them. Um, Paul Tremblay now is in this one. I would absolutely work with Paul again. He was a dream. On the other terrors, um, we worked with S.A. Cosby, who was phenomenal to work with. So there's, uh, there's definitely room for guests to be invited back. So how do you think uh, working in the anthology world – how, how does it change you as a writer, editor, person um, going through the whole process? I think going through the process, because I do write, I think it makes me certainly more sensitive to the whole process. Um, you know, as a writer, when you are dealing with editors, um, you know, you deal with some good editors and you deal with some not so good editors. So I think my experiences as a writer hopefully have made me a better editor in terms of dealing with people in terms of rejecting stories, or in terms of, you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes when you have to go to a, a best-selling, you know, author and say, hey, I love the story, I want to buy it, but there's a section I want to work on with you. Are you open to that? You know, that's something when you're not on their level as a writer that can be a little um, uh, dicey, but I think it makes you a stronger editor and a stronger writer. Certainly just reading through the submissions, I think improves my own writing because, when you're more widely read, I think that helps you be a better writer, especially if you're reading in other genres as well. So, so where, you, where do you stand on sensitivity in that? Like, do you think about how the violence is written on the page or how the horror is displayed? Like, are, are, is that something you're, 
you're consciously aware of and it makes a difference in whether a story gets in the anthology or not? Yeah, I think the horror audience in general is a, is a pretty receptive audience. And I think they're a forgiving audience if you do have something that maybe um, triggers somebody. Certainly some publishers uh, will put the trigger warnings at the beginning of the book. You know, this book contains this, that, the other thing. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I even as an editor will read something in a in a story and I'll say, hmm, this word or this phrase, I'm not so sure about it. And I'll engage, you know, personal friends who, who moonlight as sensitivity readers just to kind of make sure, you know, the goal is never to intentionally offend anyone. Anyone will take offense to anything. You, you can't make yourself, tie yourself in knots worrying about that. But, you know, certainly if there's certain um, common things that we can avoid to help somebody not be triggered or not, you know, feel offended, there's no harm in doing that. Well, it's got to be a real fine line because, like you said, horror horror readers, they, they, they do look for the violent side and and the suspense and the, the fear and there's a lot of tension involved in a lot of stories that are horror based so yeah. you know i it's kind of I, that's why i was sort of asking because it's got to be kind of a fine line is you don't want to be yeah. too clean let's just say because it takes away the the realism of the story and then you know it's got to be tough sure. and i think there's you know, there are certain things that are just taboo in general. You know, horror readers, in my experience, really don't like animal violence. Um, so you'll find very few stories with animal violence. Um, violence, explicit descriptions of violence against women and children are pretty pretty much taboo in the horror world now. I mean, years ago, you know, uh, I don't know if you were familiar with the writer Jack Ketchum. I mean, Jack wrote some stuff in the 80s. Uh, Richard Lehman wrote some stuff in the 80s with violence against women that was part of the horror, and they wouldn't get away with it today. You just couldn't. So I think the, the industry, the field of horror, has evolved enough that we're sensitive to our readers' um, limits, so to speak. Do you think it's evolved enough to to have large publishing companies take on a project like this, or are they still keeping a little distance from this? Oh, no. I mean, look at what's going on with, you know, um, with Paul Tremblay, Josh Mallerman, um, the other Terrors anthology was it was a huge uh, book for HarperCollins, was nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award. We just got notified we were nominated for the World Fantasy Award. So I think the big publishers, horror is not the dirty word it used to be. I don't know if you remember, but in the 90s and the, you know, when they, the horror kind of went bust, then when writers who were still writing horror, they would not horror it's a paranormal thriller <laughs> no it's horror it's horror you know so but but now because i think of the again we 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 cast the net far and wide now we've brought a lot of people to the table so the horror field in general is much more diverse in terms of the authors i think that's helped legitimize horror and i think horror is no longer that dirty word I mean, certainly in Hollywood, it's not a dirty word because it makes buckets and buckets of money. Right. So I think um, the the literature um, has some needs to catch up a bit, but I definitely think it's uh, more more mainstream and more acceptable. Well, and what about the gay part of the horror? The gay when you when you approach large publishers, are they still distance on that? Not as much as they were back in I, I would say the the early two thousands. Um, but it's still, again, you're you're appealing to 
um, a niche audience. So I think it's definitely going to factor in on, let's say, maybe the advance <laughs> because it's not going to sell as well as something that appeals to a broad, you know, Ellen Datlow, a preeminent anthologist in horror, you know, she sells these amazing anthologies that have these, you know, even her themed ones have big, big names attached um, and they're very general in nature. So they, they're more appealing to a larger audience. It all has to do with the audience. If you're writing something that appeals to a smaller audience, the hope is always that, you know, word of mouth is going to get out and be like, you know, well, a good story is a good story, regardless whether the characters are gay, straight, black, white, male, female, trans, doesn't matter if it's a good story. Now, have you got a story in this actual uh, anthology? I do not. I, I Some anthologists put their own work in their books. Um, I really try not to do that. I just, it's just kind of a personal preference. Um, I submit to a lot of anthologies and get published in a lot that are not mine. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't put my own stories in my own, in the anthologies. So then you have stories in other anthologies, but you don't have it in yours. Correct. And that's just something that you wanted to do that way? I think a lot of editors feel that it's just poor form. Um, when you're putting out a call for submissions, hey, I want the best stories about, here's the theme, and then you put one of your own stories in there. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's really just considered poor form. Um, some people do it, you know. Um, I, if I if I had a bigger name and a bigger built-in audience, if I was Jonathan Mayberry, um, maybe I would put one of my own stories in there because I think the audience would be there. But there's just so many voices to discover and so many great stories that I usually have more than I even can use. So I'm happy to sit my own out and just submit to other people's. I'd put two of mine in. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, it's a, it really is a personal preference for me. I just, in the horror field, I just, I don't like doing it. No, 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 no. Um, well, that's interesting. So, t so tell us, who were the hardest ones to work with? Who are the ones you want to bash right now? <laughs> well, actually, you know, the ones that I would, the ones that I would bash, are the ones that say no to me. Oh. Um, I have a, I have an unspoken rule. Right. I will invite you to three anthologies because, again, I'm not Ellen Datlow, so I'm not putting out an anthology a year. Sometimes, you know, my anthologies, there's several years in between. So if I invite you in 2008, you say no. I invite you again in 2017, and you say, no, I'm too busy. And then I invite you in 2023, and you say, oh, no, I have other deadlines. Thanks so much. Can't do it. You're off my list. I'm not going to work with you. Um, so that's the only list I really have. I've only got two people so far on it. So so that's three strikes you're out. <laughs> three strikes you're out for me. Yeah, I just feel like why why waste your time? You know, there's so many great voices out there, and if somebody's made it clear or they're really just too busy, why am I going to keep going after them? Well, you can give us the names. We'll call them right now and see. <laughs> <laughs> see what they have to say about this. No, it's it's still daytime. I'm not day drinking, so you can't forget. <laughs> Do you have a favorite story or two? I guess you see, this is hard for me because normally I can ask, but I feel as you are the editor, I guess that kind of makes it awkward for you to pick out one or two stories in the anthology. I, so it does. I think I, I when people have asked me this question before. Um, I kind of clarify when I answer the question that I'm answering it as a reader. I'm not answering it as the anthologist to put the collection together. You know, an anthologist is a lot like a museum curator. You're putting together an exhibit. It's got a theme, but there's different parts to it. And you as the curator may have 
a specific piece of that exhibit that you think really pops or that you like personally, but you're still representing the whole. So for me as a reader, um, in this one, I would probably say Wishbone by Michael Thomas Ford is one of my personal favorites. I, I, I'm friends with Mike Ford. He's a great writer. I've, I've appreciated his work for many years. So I've worked with him now on two anthologies. Um, so I really appreciated his. What I'd probably say was one of my favorites in the book. Well, for you, what makes a really great horror story? The same thing that makes a great story for me, period. I'm a, I'm a language wonk. So I love the symmetry of words. I love a beautiful turn of phrase. I'm a sucker for a paragraph that just, you know, grabs you in some real visceral, emotional way. So to me, the writing is paramount. I've recently begun reading a lot of thrillers because for my own writing, um, pacing always tends to be an issue. And thriller writers, I mean, are magnificent at pacing. They understand the punch and that that rhythm of the the shorter sentences and that's something i i need work on as a writer but as a reader i am still a sucker for beautiful language and just that that you know how the words come together so for me it's really the writing that captures me more than any element of the story and that's an important point right and even with the anthologies a lot you know these stories are, are shorter they're they're not like full novels and so right. the the choice of phrasing the words used they've got to get you to you know the reader they've got to get the reader to know and understand the characters involved what's happening and get them through the story really quickly so that's a, that's a real talent within itself yeah and that's why i think the short story in popular culture just gets such a gets the shaft. I mean, we're always focused on you know novelists, and rightfully so. They're they're huge, huge amounts of work. Uh, takes a long time, but the short story, the 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 form, is a very intricate, very specialized type of writing. And I don't think we celebrate the short story in modern culture as we used to. Right, right. Well, I you can I, I'll take the shaft anytime. Yeah, I can get it. <laughs> oh, oh boy, it's really now. Was that because this was an LGBTQ book? <laughs> Are we really going there at four thirty in the afternoon? Well, you know, um, I do it's what time, I have time to. Time for that drink. Yeah, it's I yeah, it's time for the drink. That's so it's, you know, it's ratings time. Okay. I gotta get some oh, right. jokes well, in there. It's raunchy time. Let's do it. Yeah, it's raunchy time, man. <laughs> oh, so where do you see? Your, do you see this going further? Is there going to be more anthologies? Are you going to keep going with this? Um, well, we're actually. I have a co another co-editor, and I. Um, I, I really can't name names yet, but we're working with our agent um, to pitch to a major publisher. We're we're looking at doing an anthology of world. Um, urban folklore. So in other words, urban legends that you've never heard of um, from kind of around the world. And we've got some big names attached to it. Um, we're hoping somebody like Harper Collins or someone will pick it up. So we're working on that. I do have an idea for a fourth volume of Unspeakable Horror if part three does well. Um, it's published by Crystal Lake Entertainment. They've been a joy to work with. So I would love to work with them again on a fourth volume. Um, and then I'm actually, uh, my, my day job by trade, I'm a licensed nursing home administrator here in Michigan and in New York. Um, and I did something unusual that I've never done in my adult life, which was I took the summer off 
to work on my second novel. Um, I'm like the Donna Tartt of horror. It takes me 20 years to write a novel. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that this summer. How many novels do you have? <laughs> One. <laughs> I'm working on the follow-up. So, <laughs> And that was 2006, so I'm coming up on my 20-year, hey, get another book out. I think even Donna Tart only takes 10, right? Right. <laughs> What's going on with you? Well, I'm glad you said that, like you you know, you know, took the summer off. To, you, you did something you hadn't done before. I thought you were going to say I slashed one of my homemades. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was just, like I said, I was just kind to myself. I, I, you know, I was one of those career people that just, you know, wanted to climb the ladder in, in my healthcare career. Um, and I, I think I shortchanged my creative endeavors enough that I felt like, you know, what, at my age, I'm taking the summer off. So that's what I did. Yeah. Well, no, it's important. You got to, you got to do things for yourself, right? And you got to feed yourself and, and that's how you stay healthy, right? And, yeah. The clock only ticks one way. Well, yours does. Mine, mine started going backwards <laughs> at fifty. So, <laughs> well, yeah, he's he's twenty three. Then you drank the Isabella Rossellini portion from <laughs> potion from Death Becomes Us. I so. did, and my head turns too. It spins. <laughs> so, um, it's, it, you yourself, what 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 kind of writing do you do? Like when when we talk about you and and your books, your book. <laughs> what what how would you describe that and what you're doing now what you're working on now um i would say it's more how would i describe it it's it's horror i love horror that always has a mystery element to it um even when i was a kid i was a huge fan of the the 80s slasher movies and things like that um and i always appreciated the ones that had more of an element of a mystery where it wasn't just you know some nameless killing machine running through you know killing half-clad women um, I like something where there's an element of mystery, but I still do like the horror. Um, my my book now, I would describe it as kind of like that uh, Stephen King small town, you know, evil beneath the the facade kind of a book. Um, but yeah, I would say my my horror is definitely not extreme. It's not in your face with the violence, even though I, I've even used words like slasher. I try to make it a little more um, more subtle. I don't think you have to clobber people over the head with descriptions to get the to get the point across. Um, and obviously, the main thing is you want to create characters that people care about. So when there's some when something does happen to them, um, you don't have to describe how horrible it happens. Just the fact that it happens is going to be enough to affect the reader and say, "Ah, damn it! He went there. He you know hurt this one or killed this one." So. So would Jamie Lee Curtis like to play in one of those? Oh God, I hope so. Jeez, do I hope so. Oh my God. I, I just, you know, my, my obsession with her has gone back to when I was a kid. Um, I have probably what could be described as the largest Jamie Lee Curtis collection in the world. I could easily open the Jamie Lee Curtis Memorial Museum someday. Um, I've got costumes from movies that she's been in, um, promotional things from, you know, when she advertised, remember Voice Stream Wireless? Right. Hmm. I probably am the only person left that has a Jamie Lee Curtis Voice Stream Wireless bobblehead. Her holding the voice stream phone. I mean, just crazy. Autographs, all kinds of stuff. She's making a comeback. Yeah. So. She sure is and won an Oscar. Oh, yeah. I'm a girl. So do you dress up like her? Or? <laughs> Again, are we going to the LGBTQIA thing, Alan? <laughs> it's, 
important, you know. I, I and all my pronouns, my pronouns are he, his, and no, I have not dressed up like Jamie. Well, just you never know. I mean, it's, it's nothing. You, I just, you never know. Although I would say her her outfit, her her whole persona from everything, everywhere, all at once would make a great cosplay outfit at a comic con. <laughs> oh boy. Well, that's it. Now, you're, then how do you create your characters? Like, where do they come from for you, and, and how do you see them? I see, well, that's an excellent question. I see them because I'm a huge um, pop culture junkie and I'm movies and television. I see them as actors. I cast my books in my own mind um, before I write because I need to have that visual in my head as I'm writing them, and then that helps me inform, you know, their mannerisms their look, the way they're dressed. Um, so that definitely does help. Um, you know, I, I'm the guy that has an encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, actors. I could be in a crowded mall. I drive my husband crazy. I could be in a crowded mall and I'll say, look over there. That's so-and-so from Friday the 13th part eight. She played the waitress. And he looks at me like, how the hell do you know that? <laughs> like, how is that even in your head? <laughs> so, you know, that's just the way my mind works. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I, I'm like my own casting agent. Wow. So what, what kind of, how would you describe your relationship with your characters? How would I describe my relationship? Like, do you consider them family or? Empathetic. I try to get even, even the, the, the villain, villainous characters or the quote unquote bad characters. I try to write them and I try to imagine them with a degree of empathy because I think the way to make three dimensional characters is not just to, you know, put that stock characters out there where this is the screaming shrew of a boss lady you know okay i'm more interested in well what made her that screaming shrew of the boss lady what happened to her what's her story so i try to you know imagine and on my character cards i always try to kind of give people a backstory even if it doesn't make it into the book or into the story because i think it's important for again the authenticity of the character to write it that way well, I imagine it would still come through in the personality. Yeah, you know, because that's how you you think of them. Yeah, on the whole character, maybe you would, even in their dialogue, it would probably come out how you feel about them. Yeah, I, and in in the literary six, it was funny because it was a very much an Agatha Christie, you know, on steroids slasher kind of thing where characters were getting killed, and you know, and traditionally in that subgenre, you're left with a final girl. I was left with three characters. I couldn't kill them. I was just like, I was so attached to these characters, and I had no illusions of ever writing a sequel or anything, but I couldn't kill them. So backstories with, like, your antagonists, let's say they're serial killers. One of the things about some lots of silly serial killers is uh, their cruelty to animals. Apparently we can't do that, though. Yeah, not explicitly, for sure. Um, you know, people are, it's, it's funny. We're, we're a very different culture. We have no problem watching people slaughtered in any number of imaginative ways, but, you know, show somebody in, intimate that somebody has kicked the dog and people are, you know, sending a petition out. We're a very strange culture. Well, yeah, I, I, I can't watch it. Like if they, you know, when they start slaughtering a dog, I turn it off. Right. I mean, on, it, it, I don't know if you've ever watched, I, I haven't watched in years, but years ago on the, the reality show Survivor, they would kill a chicken for food, and I'd have the pillow up against my face and tell Brian, like, tell me when it's over. I don't want to watch this. 
you know, as I just ate my <laughs> Wendy's chicken sandwich. Yes. I mean, it's just so illogical. <laughs> well, there you have it. It says it all. No, I, I can't watch that. I don't want to watch that. I don't find entertainment in that. And right. It, whereas, you know, you could string up a human and it was fine. Right, especially if conservative. <laughs> especially if they're especially if they're not a nice. Human. Yeah, you know, Republican noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, boy, I'm going for it today. Um, yeah. Uh oh. Uh oh. No. Uh, well, that's that's cool. But um, do you, it, it, how do you your dialogue? How do you do that? Do you hear your your characters? Yeah, as I said, I kind of envision it, it playing out as a movie or a show or an episode in my head. So I'll kind of be hearing the conversation as I'm writing it. I'll hear it in that in that actor that I've cast in their voice, um, and I'll and I'll kind of mimic that onto the page. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of see it as a, a movie playing out. Um, and I think dialogue is just so important too because it does give insight into the character um, and you know everything from their motivations to their background. So it's an important piece of the, the work for sure. Uh, do those voices ever tell you to do bad things? <laughs> they don't. No. They don't. You're not. No. You know. They, no. You're not they, waking they, they up. Caution, <laughs> they caution me from getting too close to Jamie Lee. They just say, stay back. <laughs> Otherwise, you will, you know, my, it's so funny because, you know, my fantasy, people are like, oh, what, what would you do if you ever, my fantasy is to literally drink tea and watch Down Abbey with Jamie Lee Curtis. This would make my life complete. That's <laughs> all I want to do. I don't want to be any weird stalker. I'm not. You know, not Kathy Bates in Misery. That's not me. I just want to have a nice cup of tea. She makes a mean lemon cake, I heard, so I wouldn't mind a piece of her lemon cake. <laughs> you know, I used to like Tony Curtis. Uh, great actor. <laughs> I guess that's a great actor. Showing, I don't know. I just sort of what did it for me, but not. Wow, that's incredible. Wow. Tony was a great actor, great-looking guy, too, for sure. And her mother was beautiful, too, Janet Lee. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was quite the uh, Hollywood romance with those two, and uh, yeah, you know, pretty amazing. And and finally, the, the the I don't think that either one of them ever won an Oscar either, did they? They did not. Both were nominated, and neither one won. So this was very, uh, very much the you know this uh, the better success of the next generation. Everything a parent wishes for their child to do a little bit better than they did, and she certainly fulfilled that destiny. Yeah. yeah. Well, fantastic. Oh, it was an amazing night. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, um, how do people find you um, besides pickup apps and bars? Like, do you have um website? <laughs> do you have, like, social media? Where do you want your readers to find I you? I do. I have social media everywhere, and you can access it through my website, which is www.vincelagano.com, and it's all there. Well, fantastic. Are you doing TikTok yet? You know, I haven't. I, I'm feeling too old for TikTok. I don't know. Do you do TikTok? I'm on TikTok. I've got 46,000 followers now. Wow. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and and I'm not showing them anything. Once in a while, I'll take my dog for a walk, and we'll take a picture of, uh, like, a big, big, huge mansion across the street. Like, the guy that owns Skinny Jeans has a house about uh, a mile away. So we walk by there, and I take a picture of that, you know, and that's about it. That's the, that's as exciting as it gets for me. That's where all the cool kids are, right? TikTok. I have to do it. You know, actually TikTok's good. I find the, um, it's, it, you, you slowly build and you get pretty good feedback. There's a lot of people that are into books and writing 
and all of oh, that okay. that are on there. Like that's oh, why I Book can... Talk is so popular. So you could you can post your stuff on there, and I post all the time, and I get, you know, I just I've gained that many this year. That's it. Wow. Since the beginning, I'll have to bite the bullet and go to TikTok. Yeah, show yeah. us a little bit of nipple. Get out there and. <laughs> or you know yeah, that's what the audience wants yeah yeah they do they i'll do. show them one of the jamie lee costumes yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> put, yeah put your dog in one of them or something you know there you go perfect and, and dress it all up you know and uh oh that's sure. fantastic well um you know we'll have all of your stuff up on our website and we'll have the book as well and and you know it's all good and everyone's got to get out there and buy that buy it it's got to do well you know. I hope so. Thank you so much. Really appreciated talking to you both. And nice speaking with you, Vince. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something weird media. I'll be back.